Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jeffrey Lan. That absurdly large rainbow flag blowing so boldly in the wind was an affirmation of everything I'd done and all the risks I'd taken. That and more. But before that, I just want to remind you that if you love what we do at Risk, you can become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. Oh my God, it is so exciting to see so many people becoming a part of the community there because there's all sorts of prizes and perks and stuff we do behind the scenes that only patrons have access to. People pitch in maybe a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, all the way up, you know, as much as you want. And it's really, really, we're just thrilled to see people showing how much they care about what we do and becoming a part of that whole patronage thing. That's at patreon.com slash risk. One more thing. One great way to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business is to go with stamps.com. So you're not wasting time going to the post office, right? Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. You just use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code R-I-S-K, for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. 
Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Broke for Free behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Heart and Arrow. This episode is one of those episodes that's all one story. Just one story. And this one is very dear to my heart because it's a good friend of mine. So... Very, very much looking forward to introducing you to my dear friend Jeffrey Lan, who told this absolutely beautiful, beautiful story we're going to share today. But before that, there's an issue about last week's episode that I thought I would address right up here up front today. As you guys know, we have a lot of controversies that pop up over stories that we run on a pretty regular basis. You know, there's listeners who are upset by this or that aspect of a story that they hear on the show. And we know that's unavoidable based on how unfiltered the storytelling is here and how willing the storytellers are to kind of revisit messes they've been in. And we always try to welcome that conversation around that kind of stuff. You know, we we always say we don't endorse anything that anyone is saying they did on the show. But we do see it as a good sign when there's a lot of comments on the listen page for an episode or a lot of tweets or emails about it, whether they're positive or negative. Now, in a story that we ran at the end of the episode last week, the episode called Getting to Know You, the final story that we ran last week, in it, a woman sees a man at a bar and she thinks he's a famous stand-up comedian. And the man, who was the storyteller, he did not correct her and explain, no, I am not that famous stand-up comedian. So the two of them, they start to get to know each other. They, they form a bit of an emotional connection. I mean, it's all under that false pretense, of course. And then later that night, she invites him home and they have sex. Now, sometimes when I go over a story with a person before a show... I hear a lot of details that maybe don't end up coming out of that person's mouth in the final live performance. And sometimes when there's a passage of time between a story having been recorded and my choosing to put it on the podcast, it'll start to get blurred for me. I think I remember spending about an hour talking with that storyteller about his story beforehand. And based on what I remembered of his conversation and the first time I heard the recording of the live performance, I felt that he had expressed regret and remorse about the deception that he had been self-critical in confessing all of this, that he had expressed care and concern about the thoughts and feelings and life 
of the woman involved. In other words, from the way I got to know the story over time and how I remembered the storyteller from behind the scenes, I felt that what was intended to be expressed was a story of conscience and compassion. Now, last week I started getting emails. Many women wrote into us that that side of the story that I just described did not come through in the way they heard that particular performance of that particular recording we ran. I believe that that side of the story might have come through if the storyteller maybe did some things differently up on stage, if perhaps he said on stage more of the things that we said in the phone conversation we'd had prior to the performance. Especially when a person is not a practiced stage storyteller, it can be unpredictable the energy, the tone, how it's going to come out when they're nervously standing in front of a live audience. And for listeners, it's a tone of voice. It's the sound that the audience, that the live audience is making. Or it's the exact wording of certain phrases that can really throw listeners off. So after several emails came my way from women saying that that particular version of the story in that recording we ran made them highly uncomfortable. And it made them feel like Risk actually kind of was endorsing that deceptive behavior described in the story. Well, then I became uncomfortable. I don't like that what these women are very genuinely and very uh, sincerely you know, writing to me that they're hearing from this story. I didn't want to be putting it out there anymore. So I decided to remove that story. Uh, It's an unusual thing. We've done it before, but uh, very, very rarely. I talked about it with the storyteller, and he agreed. He, He heard what I was saying, and he was like, okay, in that case, yeah, 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 let's take it down. He he did not feel like I was necessarily, quote unquote, throwing him under the bus or anything like that. He shared that understanding and concern about the way it was landing out there. Now, one member of our staff always says that with these situations like this, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. There might now be people upset that Risk is betraying its principles by removing a story. It's a slippery slope paying too much attention to a few complainers out there. I mean, as a 47-year-old, I can definitely say that I am often blindsided because there is an awareness, a sensitivity, a a, um, whatever, consciousness out there that's on a different level, especially with younger folks these days. And sometimes... It's a real education experience for me. And other times it's like, now, come on, come on, now you're being crazy. But in this case, (laughs) I did not feel that people were being crazy. And the fact is that at least 50% of what we record never makes it onto the podcast for a wide variety of reasons. It's always a fine line that we're walking in terms of keeping the show as uncensored, as unfiltered as possible while maintaining this trust that we have with you, the audience. We want to guarantee you that there is ultimately a humane consciousness and conscience being conveyed in all of this content. So, from our end, from my end on risk, we regret that this all went down the way it did. But there is a new final story 
at the end of last week's episode. So if you go and you re-download, um, what's it called? It's called <laughs> Getting to Know You, <laughs> the Getting to Know You episode. There will be a new story there by Samuel Routh in Seattle, and it's a remarkable story. You should definitely check it out. And you know what the craziest final twist to this whole mess is? This weekend, while I'm going through all this, you know, and processing these emails and everything, I also discovered there is a man on OkCupid in San Francisco who's posing as me to, to try to get women to sleep with him. Look on OkCupid. His name is Paperback Tigers, and he's using photographs of me to try to get women to sleep with him. So whether it's me or anyone else, Risk does not endorse this behavior. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay, so having said all that, let us now move on to today's story. <laughs> and <laughs> fasten your seatbelts because this, you know, have a box of tissues ready, I think. Jeffrey Lan is a dear friend of mine. Uh, I met him in the kink community here in uh, New York City. We actually were at a uh, an all-male kink camp this past August. I, I tell a story about that that has not yet run on the podcast, but he's just a wonderful guy. One night, just over beers, he shared this story with me, and I was so blown away. I said, oh, my God could I have you over to my apartment and just record that? And when he came over to my apartment, he told it in so much more detail that it was really, really something. So here he is now. This is my friend Jeffrey Lan with a story we call Heart and Arrow. I've always been a bit precocious growing up, and shortly after I first came out, I decided I wanted nothing to do with this whole dating thing. I wanted to just focus on being happy by myself and not feeling a need to pair off with someone, a need to search for someone to fulfill me. So, of course, as life goes, that's right about when I met the man with whom I'd spend the next 10 years of my life. I met Ed when I was 17, met him online through a Yahoo group called Bears in the Kitchen where large furry gay men and their admirers would talk about food and cooking. Someone on the list had posted a question regarding Thousand Year Eggs, a Chinese preserved duck egg, and only two of us had any answer to that. Me, being Chinese, and some guy with this vaguely Polish-sounding last name. He emailed me asking if I was Chinese, and I responded that indeed I was, and that kicked off a casual friendship, which at the time, being freshly out of the closet and not having any real contacts with other gay men, I really valued. As we got to know each other through emails and later live journal and chats on AOL Instant Messenger found that 
we had a number of kind of obscure interests in common, which which isn't terribly surprising when you consider we met over discussion over thousand year eggs. As we chatted more and more over the course of the next few months, you know, I was seventeen, he was fifty-eight. At the time, we were just kind of casual online friends, so it didn't really mean very much. We pretty much just talking about food, cooking. Occasionally, he played a little bit of a mentor role if I was, say, having frustrations with my parents. I had come out to them within the past year. My mother said the right things. My father did not address it at all. I came out to them in a letter that I left on the kitchen counter before I went off to school. For the most part, they actually did not take it very well. (laughs) As it turned out, he actually had a bit of good insight into not just, you know, a teenager dealing with his parents, but also dealing with Asian parents because he had lived in Japan for a few years growing up. He was a military brat. Later on, uh, he ended up studying Japanese tea ceremony and lived in Kyoto for probably two months. He had a fair amount of insight into Asian culture in general, and he could understand some of the friction between my parents, especially concerning sexuality, because that's not really something you address. You know, it's not like in the West where you start dating in high school. In high school, you focus on getting into college, and when you in college, you focus on getting into graduate school. And then once you have your PhD at 35, then you can start dating, and you need to get married as soon as possible, and love doesn't matter. It's strictly a social obligation, it sometimes feels like. A few months later, I moved off to go to college, and... This gave me the opportunity, now that I wasn't living under my parents' roof, to actually call him up on the phone and talk to him live and hear his voice. And I did this just about every opportunity I got when I wasn't in class. We would talk on the phone for hours at a time. We got to become very close, and we were both feeling a lot of affection for each other, but we were cautious about calling it love because neither of us had ever done this long distance dating thing before much less you know internet dating what have you but when it started coming to thanksgiving break for me at school we decided what the hell why don't i fly out to san francisco and visit him we'll see if this thing is real once we're in person on thanksgiving day i flew out remember being bubbly and giddy and shaking with excitement. I couldn't wait for them to open the door so I could get off. Aside from this personal level, this was also a very big event for me as a gay man because when I was first coming to terms with being gay and coming out of the closet, I learned that San Francisco was this gay mecca and being into bears, you know, these large hairy gay men, I found out that that movement started in San Francisco, so I had always dreamed of moving to San Francisco, and I'd hoped to go to college in the Bay Area, but my parents shut that down just because it was too far away and too expensive. But here I was, 18 years old, just two years out of closet, and finally making my dream of visiting San Francisco come true. And on top of that, it's to meet a man who I think I might be in love with. 
So I got off the plane, exited the gate, started walking towards baggage claim, and then at the end of the hallway, I saw a short, chubby man with this brown and gray beard wearing a green hoodie holding a single rose and I thought that might be him I wasn't entirely sure because of course he didn't look just like in the photo but I thought it might be him and then our eyes locked and I started grinning this big stupid grin and I ran up to him gave him the biggest hug and I could feel tears start to well up in my eyes as we finally got to hold each other and kiss each other for the first time and in San Francisco be open about it and not have to be afraid. It was such an amazing moment for me. I remember holding his hand as he led me to the air train and then to BART and Muni, riding on the train, holding hands, getting to know each other in person for the first time and we came to his apartment. He led me through the entrance, which was a back entrance. His apartment was actually a converted rectory in a church. So he led me through this back entrance and I saw his collection of Madagascan succulent plants that I'd heard so much about. He walked me into the main portion of his apartment, sat me down with a little TV dinner table and served me Thanksgiving dinner. He made a butternut squash soup with a bit of cayenne, which he didn't tell me it was spicy, it was just butternut squash soup, but I felt the cayenne burn at the back of my throat and I thought like, what an interesting touch, how wonderfully lively, brings out just enough interest in this pureed soup. Then there was a roasted vegetable salad served on a large crouton. He hated raw vegetables, so he loved salad, but they had to be cooked. And then, of course, the main course for Thanksgiving dinner, roasted turkey breast with mashed rutabagas, which I'd never had before, so I was very excited to try those. And in a nod to my Asian-American family's out-of-the-box Thanksgiving stovetop stuffing... (laughs) And for dessert, there was a peach strawberry galette that he had made that morning. I remember we were just so tired that we went right to bed and right to sleep. And here I thought our first night we'd have all this like, you know, wild monkey sex. We were just too exhausted. But we cuddled and spooned as we drifted off to sleep. And then in the middle of the night, I half woke and you know just kind of stroked his belly and he started to half wake and he pushed my hand to his crotch and so I started stroking his dick then he told me to go suck him and as I started sucking him he started saying things like yeah boy you know suck your daddy you know not in a sense of father son but you know older man younger man and we had had phone sex before so this wasn't unexpected but it was this kind of very intimate moment in the middle of the night half asleep almost in this liminal dream like state finally having this sexual intimacy with this man that I had 
been growing close to over the past year or so. After finished, we went back to sleep. And then we woke up again later, still kind of middle of the night, maybe 4 a.m. We woke up again and we had sex again, then went back to sleep. And then we woke up in the morning proper now and then had morning sex. (laughs) That ended up kind of being the routine of the entire weekend. It was sleep, fuck, sleep, fuck, sleep, fuck. Spent the rest of the weekend together with him showing me around San Francisco. He lived three blocks from the Castro, so, you know, the gayest neighborhood in the gayest city. And I remember coming out of Castro Street Station and seeing this absurdly large rainbow flag blowing in the wind. And I teared up again because here I was just 18, two years out of the closet making this kind of unexpected pilgrimage to San Francisco and seeing that large flag blowing so boldly in the wind was an affirmation of everything I'd done and all the risks I'd taken in coming out. Also in exploring this relationship with an older man whom until just 24 hours ago I'd never met. So Monday morning rolls around and we're both dreading it because it's time for me to go back to Madison. We hold hands through the whole train ride back to the airport. I rest my head on his shoulder and squeeze his hand, but we both know how much we're trying to enjoy every little moment we have left. We hug each other and he tells me, no tears. And this isn't goodbye, it's just until next time. And as I wait in line to go through screening, I'm trying to hold back the tears because we said no tears. But even though I know it'll make me break down, I give in to the temptation to look behind me. And I see him from behind going up the escalator in silhouette. And you can see he's... Just shaking a bit to try and hold back his tears. As soon as I got back to my dorm, gave him a call to let him know that you know I was home safe and I missed him. And then we went back to talking on the phone every day for hours on end. After that trip, as my freshman year was coming to a close, I decided... Yes, this is something serious that I want to explore. So I decided that over summer break, I'd spend one month going back and seeing my parents and then one month with him. And we kind of see how this thing between us would work out for a period of time longer than one weekend. But of course, I knew my parents weren't the most supportive people when it came to gay matters. So I just told them that, you know, I had a friend out there and... I used to want to go to school at UC Berkeley because of my politics and there are a lot of Chinese people out there so I'm just I just want to like visit San Francisco and see what it's all about and so summer break came and I spent the first month with my parents kind of passed the time with photography and 
I did a lot of bread baking that summer. And then my sister emailed me one day asking, just who is this friend that you're going to be staying with in San Francisco? Silly me, I gave her Ed's full name, which she then proceeded to Google, and she found his live journal profile where he talked in very explicit detail about not just his hobbies such as gardening, but also his sexual proclivities. Daddy boy role play, uh, cock and ball torture, tit torture, fisting, (laughs) group sex. So my sister, next time she came to visit, sat me down and told me that she'd found this and you don't even know this guy, you can't do this. And then my parents told me that I couldn't do this. They were terrified that I was meeting someone off the internet and no, you can't do this. You can't do this. My father gave me this ultimatum that if you want to do this, fine. You can go ahead and go be his concubine, but forget about ever being part of this family again. At the time, I was completely financially dependent upon my parents and that was not something I felt I could do. So I called it up and in tears told him what had happened. In tears, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I told him I didn't want to stop seeing him, but I felt like I couldn't give up my family just because I was so dependent upon them and I didn't know how to live without their money and health insurance. So we decided that we would, first of all, lock down our live journals so that no one could see them unless they were our friends. And then I would tell my parents that we'd broken up and I would spend the rest of the summer at their place, but we would continue our relationship in secret. My parents also paid my phone bill at the time. I was on their family plan. They got itemized phone bills showing every call that was made. So that also meant we could not talk on the phone anymore. We had been talking on the phone this whole time. But of course, since I didn't want parents to know, it was late at night and in whispers. So we couldn't do that anymore. But we could still email each other. He would risk leaving me a voicemail. We didn't know if voicemails would show up on the phone bills where the phone call came from, but I was very grateful for those because then at least I could hear his voice even if he couldn't hear mine. Through our emails, we decided through this terrible summer part that as soon as I went back to school, he would come visit me. And that's exactly what I did. I went back to Masson. This time instead of living in the dorms, I moved into a co-op and I had my own room. So he flew out to Madison and stayed with me. And it was so good to see him again and hold him again. Now I could introduce him to all my friends who had heard about him and knew him online as well through their live journals. They knew about the age difference, 41 years. I was a little wary about how they'd take it. Much to my surprise, non-issue. They loved him. They loved talking food with him. They loved talking sex with him because all my friends were kinky as well. So we got along great. And so for the rest of college, 
every other month one of us would fly out and visit the other for a long weekend and that was our relationship one of the things i'm most thankful of during this period is i had gone into college undeclared i had no idea what i wanted to do with my life like any other asian kid my parents wanted me to become a doctor or a lawyer or what have but i had no interest in any of this at the time we had an online acquaintance who was going through culinary school and one day when i was having this existential crisis i offhand just said you know like i like to cook so what if i just said you know fuck it i want to be like frank and what if i just went to culinary school and became a cook and disappointed my parents and he said to me why not cooking is a perfectly valid career choice and i never thought of it like that before because I was always raised in this environment where you had to have a good-paying, white-collar, cerebral desk job. It never occurred to me that maybe I could do work that makes me happy, even if it isn't socially prestigious. This ended up being something that was even harder to tell my parents than coming out to them as gay. But there was no question I had to finish college, so I would get a degree in horticulture with a specialization in fruit and vegetables. And then I would move to San Francisco to be with him. The cover story, which actually fit in very well, was that I was going to go go to culinary school. So after I graduated, I moved to San Francisco after five years of this long distance relationship. It was finally real. Now I'd not only visited San Francisco, I was living in San Francisco with my boyfriend. I started culinary school about a month later, so I got my first San Francisco restaurant job right before starting school. For the next year and a half between school and work, I was pulling 21-hour days, getting up at 4 a.m. so I could catch the 5 a.m. shuttle bus from Civic Center Station to campus. I'd have this little coffee break on my way from school to work and then I'd work from two in the afternoon until depending on the day midnight or two in the morning and then 4 30 I'd wake up and do it all again I have no idea how I matched you that day in day out six days a week for a year and a half I can only credit it now to youth and the support of the man who loved me at that point, Ed was working too. He had gotten a job as the counterperson at an upscale burger restaurant, but I would get home from work when he was already asleep and he'd leave for work while I was still asleep. He thought that it wasn't fair that I should have to cook dinner after being in the kitchen all day. So he made me dinner every night and had it sitting on my desk waiting for me. He would go all out and make me seared scallops with Israeli couscous and tabbouleh and he was an incredible cook. I learned so much. (laughs) And that meant so much to me. After a few years of working in restaurants, I started to burn out and I ended up getting a job in a chocolate factory. When I got the job, I found that this was actually a nine to five Monday through Friday job. 
now that we both got home at a reasonable hour together, we could cook dinner together and we both had weekends off so we could go out and have brunch and run errands together. It was in this time that our relationship really took off because we were spending time together properly as a couple. Throughout the whole time we were dating, we had this tradition. There was a bear event, kind of annual gathering of friends. It's more like a convention in Tucson, Arizona called La Fiesta de los Osos. The first time we went, it was my first time in the desert. And I was just captivated by this barren landscape and these twig-like trees and cacti beautiful sunsets and all these browns and pinks everywhere. It's a magical, mystical environment. And we decided one day we'd move there. And so after living in San Francisco together for five years, Ed was in his late 60s. He decided it was time to retire. So we decided to make our dream come true. We'd move to Tucson. I'd spend a couple years working in Tucson kitchens to get a feel for the food scene there, what ingredients are available, what the dining public there wants, and then I'd start my own business. Of course, moving is never easy on anyone. There was some friction while we were packing up for the move. One day while we were at home, we were having a bit of downtime taking a break from the packing. He grabbed a marker out of his pencil cup and drew a heart on my shoulder with an arrow going through it and his name in it. And, you know, I snapped a little photo of it and posted it to Facebook. And he said, now let's get it done for real. At the time, because we'd been having this friction and I'd never gotten a tattoo before and I was concerned about how much of a commitment they are. I didn't say no, but I tried to play off like, oh, you know, we're going through so much right now. You know, this really isn't the time. Like, maybe like after the move, we can talk about it. And so we left it at that. On September 2nd, his birthday, we packed up a U-Haul, and with the help of some friends, we started the drive from San Francisco to Tucson, Arizona. Throughout the whole time we were dating, you know, we knew Ed was now in his 60s. Like anyone in their 60s had a few health problems. We'd known for a long time that there was a valve in his heart that would need to be replaced, and that was actually part of why we moved down to Tucson, because... The U of A has a great cardiac division at their med school. So on January 31st, 2013, I took him to the hospital. It was my day off just to get some tests done uh, to see if he would be eligible for a surgical procedure where rather than opening up the rib cage to do open heart surgery to replace the valve, they go and do it all endoscopically. The tests did not turn out the way they wanted it to. They found out that the condition had progressed 
and so they scheduled him for open heart the next day. He didn't want to go through the surgery. I tried to be optimistic to keep him afloat. The doctor talked him through what they'd be doing, gave him a pamphlet regarding you know, surgery and recovery. I looked through the pamphlet and I said, don't you want to look through the pamphlet? And he told me, no, you realize this is the end, don't you? And I told him, no, don't say that. Try to be optimistic about this. They'll fix it up just right. They've got a great cardiac division here. As they were getting him ready for surgery, they found that there's a bit of kidney damage from the radio contrast dye they'd used for the tests the day before. They thought, let's not take our chances. Let's give him some time to recover before we go in. They thought that he'd be ready for surgery the next day. Again, as they're getting ready, they realize that he's been having trouble urinating this past couple days. It's been very painful and it's been coming out very dark. And they realize he might have a bladder infection. So let's postpone the surgery again. And all this time, I'm still going to work during the day and coming home, taking care of what needs to be done before I go visit him. And so when they decided to postpone the surgery again, I decided to... Well, I didn't really have a choice. I went to work. After work, I had to go home and do laundry because I had no clean clothes left. Then I called Ed up to let him know that sorry I ran so late, but I'm finally on my way to the hospital now. But when I called, he didn't answer. I got a nurse at the hospital. Couldn't quite understand what he was saying, but I got the impression that I need to get to the hospital right away. So when I got to his room, there were a bunch of doctors there and they explained to me that he'd had a bit of a cardiac event and he's having some difficulty breathing, but they've got him on BiPAP machine, which forces air into his lungs continuously, even when he's exhaling. I can see Ed is in a bit of distress and he starts having very bad chest pains again. The nurses start injecting him with drugs and they aren't working. He's in a lot of pain. He's holding onto my hand so tightly. Things are getting worse and the nurse tells me they need me to leave the room so they can put him under and do some more work. They don't want me around with all these wires and cables and tubes everywhere because I might accidentally bump something and I understand and so I tearfully tell Ed you know it's like I need to go but I'll be right outside don't worry and he's saying please don't leave me please don't leave me it hurts so much please don't leave me I want to die please don't leave me and I reassure him no you're going to be alright you've got the nurses right here they're going to take care of you I need to go, but I'll be right outside. So I let go of his hand and I leave the room and I sit on the couch and I wait. (laughs) Nurse comes out and tells me they need to take him down for some emergency surgery. And for a second, my mind thinks, what if they lose him? But I break down crying, but I tell them, no, 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 they're not going to lose him. I can't think like that. I need to think positively. After a while, nurse comes to me and tells me it's 
going to be a late night. And so I go home and I try to get some sleep. I wake up in the morning. He's got tubes in him and he's connected to all these machines. The doctor and nurses explain to me, oh, yeah, this is the respirator. This is breathing for him. And this machine is taking care of pumping blood while his heart heals and so on and so forth. So every day I go to the hospital and I sit by his side and I hold his hand. They say it'll take him some time, but he should come out of it. And even two weeks after they took him off the sedatives, he never fully wakes up. And all this time things are up and down, up and down. Uh, he seems to be getting a little better, but then his heart isn't pumping as well as they think he's going to do something to put him on another machine or his lungs are filling up with some fluids so they need to do a tracheostomy and I sign off on that and his kidneys aren't doing so well so they put him on dialysis um, and I'm there every day I bought a little speaker at Target so I could hook up his iPod and play his favorite music for him even though he's not awake but the nurses tell me, you know, sometimes they can still hear things. So I put on his favorite music and I talk to him and I hold his hand as I read my book or play games on my tablet. And finally, on February 28th, I tell the doctor that I want the big picture. I'm just so tired of getting my hopes up and then having them dashed every couple of days. I asked to have it bluntly because I want to know just what the hell is going on. And the doctor tells me, Ed has been in constant code ever since he was first admitted to cardiac ICO a month ago. He probably has brain damage because that first night they nearly lost him and he stopped breathing for however many minutes. But since he never fully woke up, we don't really know for sure, but there's a pretty good case that he has brain damage. So he's undergoing multiple organ failure and there is a 90% chance of death. When you're dating someone who's 41 years your senior, you have a pretty good idea that one day they're going to die. And so... It's not like I never knew that the day would come where I'd have to deal with the heartache of losing him, but this is so much sooner than I'd anticipated. The plus side is that when you're dating someone 41 years younger than you, you know you're they're going to outlive you, and so you know to tell them your wishes. So I knew that Ed didn't want to be on life support, and this whole time... He'd been in the hospital. I had been wondering if, you know, is he on life support or is he just in recovery? And I was trying to figure out what the right thing to do was. Once the doctor told me that there was a 90% chance of death, I knew that this is not what he wants. But I don't know if I'm legally allowed to do this. Unfortunately, this was before the Defense of Marriage Act was struck down. And while we were registered domestic partners in the state of California... We weren't in California anymore, so I asked the nurses who all this time have been 
wonderful and not batting an eye at the fact that we're a same-sex couple or that there is this huge age difference. They are perfectly okay with this. So I asked the nurses if I can take Ed off life support because I know this isn't what he wants. And they tell me they'll consult their legal department, but it'll take some time. So I sit in this darkened break room and I lose it. I just start crying uncontrollably. And the wait is taking a long, long time. I'm so glad I'm alone because I am right now having this ugly, snotty, heaving, gasping, cheeks aching cry, just laying waste to this box of rough institutional tissues that the nurse had thankfully given me before she left to go check with the legal department and I cry until it hurts and I cry until there's nothing left in me and finally the nurse comes back and thank god Tucson is this Pima County is this one little blue blip in a red state the legal department has decided yes I'm allowed to take him off life support and so I tell her that's what I would like to do. I go back to Ed and I hold his hand and I tell him everything the doctor told me that there's a 9% chance of death. And I tell him that I'm so sorry I've dragged this out for so long, for a whole month with him suffering. Once I found out that they were keeping him alive, I knew this wasn't what he wanted, so I told him that I want him off life support, and they were going to prepare him, and it'll happen tonight. Ed was very religious. He was actually a bishop in the Greek Orthodox Church, started his own diocese, the Independent Greek Orthodox Church of the United States, so there would be a church that specifically welcomed gay people. I'm not particularly religious, but I want to honor him and his beliefs. So I search up the Greek Orthodox Church in town, and I call the priest there, and I explain the situation. I'm, I just tell him, it's like, I don't really know too much about the church, and I don't know if you're qualified to do this, but my partner is a bishop in Greek Orthodox Church. I don't know if there are any like last rites or anything that needs to be done, but you know he's very sick, and I'm taking him off life support tonight. Um, just let me know if there's anything that needs to be done. And again, you know, I'm expecting to get some blowback because we're a gay couple, but nothing. He tells me he'll cancel all his appointments for the rest of the night, and he'll meet me at the hospital. When I go back to the hospital, I sit and I hold Ed's hand. Some friends start coming by. The nurses wheel in a cart with a box of Dunkin' Donuts coffee and some apples and bananas and bagels and cream cheese. And the priest shows up. And starts reading from the Bible and anointing Ed's body with holy oil 
he finishes. And I can actually see that he is holding back tears. And so when he's done, he gives me the cotton ball that he had used to anoint Ed. Explains everything he's done. Gives me a hug and excuses himself and leaves. It's time to do this. And you know, I thought that when you decide to take someone off life support, you just turn the machines off and that's that, but the nurse tells me there are multiple ways we can do this. God fucking damn, all I want to do is just end it. And now I need to decide how I want this done. And I remember Ed telling me how back in the 60s and 70s, he, he experimented with all these drugs and the opioids were really fun. And, you know, he loved heroin the one time he tried it, but he knew that, you know, he could not do it again because it just felt so good that he knew he'd be addicted. But, you know, I sighed. He should have one last good trip for everything he's been through. And so I tell them to pump him full of drugs. And they tell me that when they do this, you know, his breathing will slow until it eventually stops. And so I hold him as they do that. I asked the nurse if they couldn't lower the sidebar on the hospital bed so I can lean closer. And I hear them turn off the machines for the other drugs that all month long I've been hearing them hiss and beep to the point where when I was home I would avoid using the microwave because the beeping sound was just so traumatic. At first I'm crying as I'm holding him, but then I start stroking his hair and stroking his hand with my thumb. And it goes from crying to reassurance. I tell him, it's going to be okay. You can let go. It's all right. You don't need to suffer anymore. As the breathing slows. And the nurse comes and whispers to me. He's gone now. And I know this because I can start feeling his body cool down to room temperature. In 24 hours, I've gone from having hope that the love of my life will recover my very first boyfriend. Now he's dead. And my friends watch as I hold him and I cry and and his skin's kind of waxy. It doesn't bounce back when I hold myself against him. And I start my new life as a widower.
Later on, the grief would come back manifest as post-traumatic stress. I'd end up having invasive thoughts and flashbacks. But when I realized I could start living my life and finding my new normal, I realized, you know, I fell into this relationship with Ed right as I was becoming an adult and I'd spent my entire adult life with him. My entire identity was wrapped up as Jeff and Ed being part of this couple and I realized now I had a chance to become myself, whoever that was. I'd forgotten how much I valued my solitude and independence and being able to have quiet time to myself. You know, occasionally he would go out of town on church business and this was my opportunity to eat foods he didn't like and take myself out to dinner with a book and now I could do that all the time and I was getting to know myself again. On August 7th, 2013, what would have been our 11th anniversary if he hadn't died earlier that year, I went to a tattoo parlor and I got a heart with an arrow and his name through it tattooed on my shoulder. And I had a portion of his ashes mixed into the ink so that he'll always be a part of me and he'll always be with me. is all for this week's episode folks this is dl rossi behind me now and of course we just heard from jeffrey lan uh thank you so much to jeffrey and thanks also to our editors beowulf jones took the first stab at that jeff barr is the episode editor and he does the final edits of all of those stories that you hear those radio style stories and just remarkable remarkable work 
Uh, Jeffrey also, I asked him if there's anything he'd like me to say at the end, and he said he wanted to encourage people, especially LGBT people, to get legal paperwork like the living will, the power of attorney, and final will written and signed while you're still healthy. Now, here is where Risk is appearing live next on March 18th. We are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Sovereign Sire will be there. Brian Babylon will be there. It's going to be an amazing show. L.A., come on out March 18th at the Bootleg. On March 18th, I will be hosting Risk for the first time ever in Burlington, Vermont at Arts Riot. Come on out, folks. Go to riskdashshow.com slash tour if you need any information about how to get tickets to our Burlington, Vermont show on March 18th. On April 9th, we have a big, big, big show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Michael Ian Black will be there, Michelle Buteau, Don Will, Lawrence O'Keefe. It's going to be a hell of a night. April 9th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On April 29th, April 29th, we're back in Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. Still taking pictures for that one. The theme is action. On May 20th, May 20th, we're in Denver, Colorado. The theme is irresistible. On June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. Revolution Hall, the theme is hype. On June 10th, Seattle, Washington. The Vera Project, the theme is destructive. On June 11th, Vancouver at St. James Hall, the theme is monster. So all those, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, Denver, Minneapolis, all of those, pitch us guys at riskdashshow.com slash submissions. And, you know, there's more going into the summer. There's uh, Washington, D.C. on July 8th. One of a kind is the theme that night. On July 15th, we're in Philadelphia. Uh, the theme is Revelation in Philadelphia on July 15th. All those shows were taking pitches. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Don't forget, if you ever want help with preparing stories, we also have a school at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one -on -one training over Skype or in person. We do in-person workshops with groups. You can download our video courses, or you can hire us to teach your staff of your business how to communicate more effectively at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. That don't Sing.
Je ne 